Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 14, chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. This day shall be a, rem a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats unleavened bread from, or leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a solemn assembly, and on the seventh day, a solemn assembly. No work shall be done on those days. Only what everyone must eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread, and on this very day I brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance. In the first month, from the beginning of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, you shall eat unleavened bread. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether an alien or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. be seated. So we are wrapping up today a sermon series called Flourish on Living an Abundant Life. I wanted to kick off the new year with this. I wanted us to be thinking about what goes into that abundant life. Jesus promised that that's what he came for. He came to offer us life and life to the full is what he says, or to the abundance and so we've been looking at the scriptures and we've been looking at some modern positive psychology and, and what goes into that. And, and today I want to wrap up with um, what Martin Seligman calls achievement. Um, this is the fifth out of the five buckets that he says go into human flourishing. And, and this, is, this is a no-brainer, right? This makes sense, I think, to everyone that when you work hard and you achieve something, it just feels good, doesn't it, right? You put in the work, you win the game, it feels good. You win the championship, everyone holds you up on their shoulders, right? You work hard at work, you get promoted, it feels good. You, you make it through some kind of difficult time in your life and you come out the other side unscathed or maybe a little scathed, it feels good on the other side, doesn't it? It feels good to be acknowledged for working hard, doesn't it? No surprise, uh, because I'm an engineer and I absolutely love a good equation, uh, when I found this one in, in Flourish that uh, I knew I had to share it with you all. So here's, here's Martin Seligman's equation for what goes into achievement. It's uh, skill plus effort. It's that much. It's, it's that simple. And yet, 
as I have said multiple times throughout this series, whole schools of research have spun off of his original ideas in positive psychology. And so I want to introduce you to the two experts on these two things, on skill and effort. The, the one on skill is Anders Ericsson. He is a professor, I think, at Emory, but I'm not 100% sure on that. He wrote this book called Peak. It basically goes into looking at what, what does it take to be the best in your field. So he researched and interviewed the best chess player in the world, the best violinist in the world, you know, the best basketball players in the world. All of these different kinds of what does it take to be the best? And, and I'll summarize the book for you in just a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a quote in a minute, but first let me, let me summarize the book for you. It's basically this, practice a whole lot. And from the time you were young. So if you could just go back until you were like six years old with all the knowledge that you have now, decide what you want to be in life early on, and then practice that like 40 to 60 hours a week for the next 20 to 30 years of your life, and then you'll be the best at it. And of course, we, we can't do that. We can't go back. But that's what it takes. Those that are the best at whatever they do found that they had a passion for that thing when they were young and then they just did it all the time the quote that I thought I'd share from the book here is that this is a fundamental truth about any sort of practice that you never uh, if you never push yourself beyond your comfort zone you will never improve learning isn't a way of reaching one's potential but rather a way of developing it throughout the book he talks a little bit about not just practice because it is time but what makes good practice? What, do you, what happens, for example, when he's talking about here, you hit a wall, right? When something becomes a little too difficult for you, a little too hard. He talks a lot about having good coaches. Some of you guys play golf out there. You know it does not do any good to practice a golf swing if you're doing it poorly. Then you just, then you just ingrain that into your life more and more, right? And then your swing is, is stuck there, and, and that's why I don't play golf. And my point is, there are ways to practice, and, and, but it comes down to the effort. It comes down to the time, which brings us back to the equation. And on the effort side of things, you have probably heard of Angela Lee Duckworth. If you haven't, let me encourage you to go find her TED Talk. It's one of the, I think, top 10 TED Talks out there. It's incredible. Martin Seligman actually introduced her in his book. And he's a professor at Penn, and he talks about how difficult it is to get into the positive psychology school at Penn University, and how they have these really strict guidelines that they follow and really rigorous requirements to get in, and how they never bend on any of those rules except this one time. And the person who was screening the applications brought him this application by hand from a student named Angela Duckworth. Angela was a, she had turned in her application late or something, and normally that would get her application thrown right in the throwaway pile, but, but this one stuck out, and it's because she was a inner city public school teacher, and she was just recognizing that the, the grades and the test scores are not on par. They're not where they needed to be. And so she started doing some of her own research about what goes into that. And Grit is the book that she ended up writing out of that whole experience. And basically what she says is it comes down to your grit, your ability to show up and do the work. 
Intelligence, when compared to grit, is negligible. Home income and whether your family's together and successful or not, negligible compared to whether or not you show up and do the work. And so here's one of the quotes that I pulled from this book. Uh, says, grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. It's having stamina, it's sticking with your future day in and day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. She said that the effort part of that equation is double what the skill part of that equation is. I think she was probably just just throwing a number out there. I think everyone that has researched it would say it might be more like 80 or 90 percent. It's just showing up day after day. And if you can read that and read how your willingness to persevere through a hard time is what really makes the difference in whether or not we achieve hard goals. If you can read that and not hear Hebrews chapter 12 in the back of your mind where whoever wrote Hebrews said, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, right? This is, this is a pretty common theme in Scripture, that we develop the grit to persevere through hard times, through good times, that we just, we manage to push through, that we manage to stay with it. Anyone who has ever felt like not working out and then went and worked out anyway, have you ever done that and then left the gym and thought, yeah, that was a total waste of time, I shouldn't have done that? No, every time, if you just show up, just lace your sneakers up, show up, then do the work, then you're gonna leave and you're gonna feel like, wow, I really felt awful before I came today, but I'm so glad that I did. I feel so much better now that I did. You're gonna feel good about yourself and your body is going to reward you with all the endorphins and chemicals that kick in when you exercise and all the kinds of things. It's just about showing up the first time. Now there's a danger though, if we talk about achievement, and Martin Seligman acknowledges this in the book, we can strive after the wrong things, can't we? So the, there's the danger, and this also pops up in scripture a, a lot, right? That we spend our life chasing after the wrong things. So the first scripture that came to my mind was, uh, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and, let, and yet lose your soul? And so the question then becomes, what should we strive after? And the question that I put up here is, what do we celebrate? And the reason I put that up there is because I think what we celebrate shows us what we value. It shows us what we are really shooting for. And so the reason I had the scripture read today that we read on the Passover is because that is one of the government mandated, one of the legally mandated uh, biblically mandated, I should say, celebrations in Scripture. There are seven Jewish festivals that are in the Torah that are prescribed, that are, as I said, legally mandated by God for us to take part in, but they really kind of fall into three big buckets because Passover follows the week of unleavened bread, right? So I thought we would just go through these, and, and as you go through them, you can see how it shapes Jewish identity, who we believe we are, what we believe we value, and what we're really celebrating. 
So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is the moment that the Jews celebrate being released from slavery in Egypt, right? The reason they don't eat unleavened bread is because it's a symbol for not having time to let the bread rise, you know, to not let the dough rise, because God was going to put an end to their slavery that night, and he told them, when you go to bed tonight, sleep with your shoes on and sleep with your belt on, right? Be ready to go in the morning. This is the moment that they went from slavery to freedom. And as I already said, this is legally mandated time off. And think about what that means to someone who has just spent their entire life working seven days a week to make bricks or whatever it is that their slave owners had them making. They went from a life where their whole value was found in what they could produce. And suddenly they were told that they had to take off every Sunday, or Saturday in this case, and these festivals throughout the year where you take a whole week off and you celebrate in order to remember that your value does not come in how much you can produce, but it comes because you're a child of God. And God is rescuing you from that rat race, that slavery, and giving you freedom. The next one is Feast of Weeks, and it's called the Feast of Weeks because it happens seven weeks after the Passover. Seven weeks and one day, to be exact. Uh, if you take seven weeks and one day and you add that up, you'll notice that that would be 50 days, and the prefix for 50 in Latin is pent, and uh, that's why we call it Pentecost. So 50 days after Passover, we celebrate Pentecost. The way the Jews celebrated Pentecost was that that was the time they remembered God giving Moses the law at Mount Sinai. So in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we celebrate freedom. Now in the Feast of Weeks, we celebrate this covenant that God had made with them, right? He gives them the law and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And the way that people are going to know that you're my people is because you're going to live this way. Here's the law that is different from other cultures around. Here's the way you're going to be set apart and holy, as the scriptures say. And then the last one happens in the fall, around October. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same word as the tabernacle that the Jews made, which was a tent, the tent of meeting where God would meet them, and they carried it around throughout the wilderness. And they would come, and they would come to Jerusalem, right? And they would build their own temporary tents, their, their temporary structures, and they would live in them, and there would be like a street festival for a whole week, like, like Bonnaroo or, or what's another music festival? Name one. You know, the ones where everyone sleeps in a tent and doesn't bathe for days. That's what this is. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. Everyone travels from the countryside to Jerusalem. You bring your tents, you set it up on the sidewalk, and everyone celebrates for a full week in order to remember the time when they didn't have a home, to remember the time when they wandered through the desert and God took care of them, right? God, when they didn't have a place to live, God was with them in God's tabernacle. And when they didn't have food to eat, God provided quail and manna. And when they didn't have water, God provided water. And so this one is about God's provision. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at these, these all follow the agricultural cycle as well. So some of you have, you know, have old grandmothers that used to say you never plant your garden before Easter right? Which happens the same weekend as Passover. You don't, and the reason is because we happen to be on about the same latitude lines as 
Israel. And so we have very similar weather patterns. And so it turns out that Passover marked also the planting season for them. Well, then what happens 50 days after the planting season? You got first fruits, don't you? So the whole celebration of first fruits happened around the same time that they celebrate receiving the law from Mount Sinai. And then, if that happens in the spring, what happens in October? The final harvest. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, when they're having this street party in Jerusalem for a whole week long, the prayers would always be, thank you, God, for the harvest and prayers for rain during the winter, right? And so all of these, if you, if you look at the Jewish festivals in that way, you begin to see how what we celebrate shows what we value. It shows who we are. It shows what we believe the most. So I thought I would share with you some of the reasons I have been using these background pictures for the last five weeks. I pulled pictures from my phone for these backgrounds because they remind me of some of our family's achievements and some things like that. Now, last week, I kind of spoiled the, the surprise with this picture of me walking through the Valley of Fire and showing you a picture of the goats, just so that you could see the achievement there is that I survived, and I'm here telling you about that moment. And no goat, uh, you know, wrecked me in the desert. But the, let me show you some of these other pictures, and I'll show you why I pulled them. This is a picture of my family hiking the Appalachian Trail. Uh, we did this uh, seven years ago, something like that. It's a long time ago. And we, we hiked about 30 miles one summer um, up in the Grayson Highlands section of the trail in southern Virginia. Um, which is not a big deal. Hiking 30 miles in a week is not a big deal, except that Charlie there was six years old when we did that. And she carried her own gear, most, mostly. Uh, <laughs> and we all made it, right? Uh, a hint, if you have young kids hiking, um, make sure you have M&Ms in the trail mix because when they get down, you just pop a little caffeine and sugar into their body and it's like turning the switch back on. It's just they're ready to go again. This is the section of the trail where uh, the wild ponies live. If you've ever been up there, you can feed the ponies, and that's what Mac is doing in this, this image. Anyway, this to me is, is just a great joy getting to look back at these pictures and remembering what my family did together. Uh, this next picture is, um, this is one I almost didn't include because I don't want it to come across bragging, but it, I'm proud of it because it's an achievement for Leanne and I in the sense that this is part of our retirement savings and the way that you put back into your, your retirement and things like that. We saved up for an investment property, and this is a, a tiny little one-bedroom, one-bath fish camp on Escambia Bay down uh, right across from Pensacola. And so there's two images facing the same direction. One is the sunset and one is the... Uh, kind of right at daybreak in the morning uh, with my coffee there. And anyway, it's, it's one of those achievements that we're really proud of. Uh, this next one, and you guys are going to be so tired of me talking about myself here, but this one is great because the achievement here is that I managed to put this picture up in a church service, and uh, I'm sure I'll get to hear about it later. This is our family at St. John, and it's one of our favorite vacations ever. And I absolutely love that picture of the kids wearing their floaties. They were so young that we made them wear floaties when we snorkeled. And um, there's Leanne modeling her snorkeling gear. And then let's quickly move on to... The next one, this is our image background for today. And this is my boys repelling at Mount Chiha. 
Um, so that, that I used to be into climbing and rappelling quite a bit, and the boys there are probably like six years old and eight years old, and I feel like that's an achievement because I can't imagine at eight years old strapping onto a rope and jumping off the mountain, and that's what Robert's doing there. Um, and Mac decided to stay on the ledge, and that was completely fine. Um, huge achievement for us to just be able to get out there and do it. That's a long break for me to brag just for a minute. But let's talk about what the church celebrates and the achievements that we're most excited about. I, I think it's worth restating in very simple terms that September 30th, we had a $60,000 deficit and December 30th, that had been cut to 2,500. Y'all made up $57,500 in three months and that is enormous. You should celebrate that. You should be thankful for, your, for that. You should be patting yourselves on the back and your friends on the back for that. It is not a small achievement. It's a big one. Um, I want to also celebrate that this afternoon our leaders are going to get together for the monthly leadership meeting. And there'll be 50 to 70 of us in here and like inspired to go out and do good work. And the work that happened during January after our first leadership meeting was just, it was beautiful. I constantly kept hearing about people doing incredible things that <laughs> I wasn't like leading or being in charge of and sometimes barely even knew about. And it's just, it's the church being the church, right? It's the body being the body, going out and doing the work. But, but I wanted to show this picture here because last week the youth moved. Um, they moved from their youth room over in the Restore building behind the auditorium over there. And they moved back over here upstairs to the step-up room, to the old youth space. And it wasn't any of the adults' idea, but some of the kids asked if they could write prayers on the walls. And y'all did this like 15 years ago, I think. Whenever you bought Restore, you wrote prayers on the walls and floors and things like that. And the kids here, kids here are writing prayers for whoever's going to use that building next. They're writing prayers saying goodbye. They're writing prayers that God would bless the people that get to use that building after us. And if that's not something worth celebrating, y'all, like we're not, we're not noticing what we should be celebrating, I don't think. This, this is... This is our children leading us, right? Like, this is our children remembering what's important. And it's not buildings. We're going to mourn missing that building, but buildings are buildings. And what we have here is young people growing up to be the kinds of people that God would have them to be. And that, I believe, is absolutely worth celebrating. When we talk about what we celebrate, I think we should always remember one of the things that the Bible tells us to celebrate often, and that is our sufferings, which is counterintuitive, right? But we celebrate when we suffer, and so the scripture, of course, is we boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. There's that perseverance word. Angela Duckworth would be so happy. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And, and this, friends, this is discipleship. This is what it means to grow that through the hard times, we rejoice in those hard times because it is through those hard times that we develop as people, that we grow into the people God has called us to be. In at a different place in the book, Angela Duckworth throws in this quote here about grit. 
about having an ultimate concern, a goal you care about so much that it organizes and gives meaning to almost everything that you do. And grit is holding steadfast to that goal even when you fall down. And I wanted to put this toward the end of this sermon series because it circles all the way back to our first sermon in this series, and that is meaning. That is that we find the most fulfillment in life when we have a reason to get up in the morning, when we have purpose in our lives, when we have something that is pulling us forward. And surprise, surprise, that same kind of thing will lead you to the practice, to the effort, to showing up, to doing what you need to do in order to continue growing in your own faith. You might, if you're looking for a purpose, you might turn to Matthew where it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. As long as we keep that first and that purpose at the forefront of our minds, then everything else falls in place. And then I want to end with this little paragraph that Angela Duckworth put in the book because I think it wraps it up really, really well. There were three bricklayers, and they were asked, what are you doing? And the first said, I'm laying bricks, and the second one says, I'm building a church, and the third one says, I'm building a house for God. The first bricklayer had a job, the second one had a career, and the third one had a calling. And friends, we have a calling. And that calling is to go out and make disciples of all nations. It's a calling to make a difference in this community where we can, in what ways we can. It's a, it's a calling to embody the kingdom of God, to be the hands and feet of Christ wherever we go, whether that's to work or school or down the street or to the grocery store or whatever it is, to make a difference in this community. And we're reminded of that calling, I believe, today because we get to wrap up with celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so I'd like to pray for us, and then I'm going to hand that over to Reed. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have called us to great things. And I ask that you give us the grit, the effort, the, the, the tools that we need in our tool bag to show up. And where we fall short, we ask that you would fill in the gaps. Um, we ask that you teach us to trust in you and continue to be the people that grow into the people you would call us to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.